Hello, and welcome back to the History Obscura Reading Room. I am your host, Mandy Gardner, and tonight I am very pleased to bring you a singularly creepy and totally true tale compiled by Ash Woods of The Crime Historian. Please go and read her other true stories via the Medium link in these show notes. Now, while you go top off your cup of tea and get comfortable, here's another lovely lady you should definitely get to know. Hi, my name is Kaylin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Tea Time Thoughts. Do you ever wish you could learn more about history, books, music, art, and culture, but you just don't know where to start? I totally feel your pain. Learning about all these things can be so overwhelming. Well, I want to change all of that for you. In my podcast, Tea Time Thoughts, I'll show you just how fun it all can be. In the time it takes to have a cup of tea, I'm going to teach you everything from the French Revolution to the Black Plague, Mozart to Broadway musicals, Da Vinci to Robert Frost, Ancient Egypt to Queen Elizabeth II, and more. You can stream Tea Time Thoughts wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So what are you waiting for? Put the kettle on and listen to Tea Time Thoughts today. My, that bush can come out a little tobacco-y, can't it? There we are. Now, once upon a time, in 1911, Madame Julius Fazikas was stewing arsenic flypaper on the stove. She stood stirring at the stove as the water simmered in the pot. Fazikas pulled at the threadbare shawl around her shoulders it was cold and very late at night, but she was the only midwife and healing woman in the village. She was used to being woken up at night for help. Behind her, Mrs. Takax sat hunched on a stool, rocking silently with her arms wrapped around herself. Her husband had been drinking again, and he had railed at her in a drunken rage in their home. She fled to Fazekas' house when he started using his fists on her. The water in the pot rose to a furious boil. Fazekas removed the pot from the stove and skimmed off the top of the water. She turned around and placed a small vial of liquid onto the kitchen table. The candlelight flickered on Mrs. Tekak's stony face. She stared unblinkingly at the corked bottle in front of her. Fazikas turned away to attend to her stove. After a moment, there was a rustle of cloth and a light breeze. When Fazikas turned back to look, both Mrs. Takax and the bottle were gone from the house. Two days later, there was a funeral at Mrs. Takax's house. Word was that Mr. Takax had had a heart attack. Fazikas watched the funeral procession from the porch of her home. As the funeral procession passed out of the village, a faint barrage of curses emanated from one of the worn-looking houses on the street. It was soon followed by muffled shouting and crying. No one paid the outburst any attention. It was so commonplace in the village that everyone ignored it. Fazekas went back into her house and put a pot of water to simmer on the stove. The word will spread, she knew. 
and soon there will be another distraught woman knocking on her door. It was the quiet beginning of the hundreds of murders that would tear apart the village for the next fifteen years. Madame Julius Fazakas was the first angel-maker of Nyagrev. Julius Fazekas arrived in the village of Nagrev in 1911. She was a middle-aged midwife with a murky background. No one knew where she came from. She was married, but her husband apparently went missing under mysterious circumstances. She came with several strong references from doctors praising her nursing abilities. Nagrev was a farming village in Hungary around 60 miles southeast of Budapest. The nearest town was Tizekert, on the banks of the Tsitsaver River. Like many other villages dotting the Danubian plain, Negrev was small and obscure. There was a pub, a large and empty church, and a few muddy streets lined with single-story cottages. There was no resident doctor or hospital at Nyagrev, and Fazekas, with her basic medical skills and midwifery expertise, became the only source of medical help in the village. Fazekas took on the task of caring for the sick and the infirm in this remote area. The women came to Fazekas first with their health problems and then their domestic issues. As time went by, they grew to rely on her advice. Fazekas was only in the village for three years, but in that period of time, she had gained a reputation of administrating abortions. It was in the early 1900s, and in Hungarian society, marriages were arranged. Parents selected husbands for their teenage daughters, and sometimes, the men were much older than the women. Women had no say in whom they married, even if the man was alcoholic or abusive towards her. Divorce was taboo. In many of these marriages, there were few feelings between man and wife. Extreme poverty and hardship during World War I further eroded whatever emotional attachment man and wife might have had towards each other. Life was hard in the poor village of Nagrev. Poverty was so rampant that newborns were seen as burdens. Families simply could not afford to feed another mouth. As World War I raged on, life became more difficult. Able-bodied men were sent off to fight at the front for Austria-Hungary. Only the women were left to work the fields. Nagrev became a holding camp for the Allied prisoners of war because of its remote location. The Russian prisoners of war were drafted to work the farms. In the absence of local men, the women in the village began to have romantic affairs with these young men. Women took on three to four lovers at a time. Some of these indiscretions resulted in unwanted pregnancies. The women approached Fazekas for help. Soon there was a growing line at Fazekas' door for clandestine abortions. Fazekas would eventually be arrested 
at least ten times between 1911 to 1921 for performing illegal abortions. But each time, she would be acquitted and released by sympathetic judges. It was no doubt because she was the only medical caregiver in the village. When the war-weary men returned to Nagrev from the bloody battlefields, it was a less-than-joyous union for both husbands and wives. The men trickled back into the village, wounded and crippled. They were estranged from their wives by the long years apart and the horrific things they'd seen on the warfront. The women, on the other hand, had learned how to live without their husbands. Their romantic flings with the POWs reminded them that they were women with their own lives. They did not have to spend the rest of their lives bound to their drunken, violent, or crippled husbands. They resented the loss of their independence and sexual freedom. One by one, they went to Fezekas to pour out their discontent with their husbands. Why put up with them? Fezekas allegedly told the women after listening. I have a solution. The solution was arsenic, boiled off from flypaper soaked in water. The first death began quietly. Pazekas offered her first vial of arsenic to a village woman by the name of Mrs. Takax. Mrs. Takax had had enough of her brutish and alcoholic husband. She slipped the arsenic into her husband's meal and waited. It worked as planned. Her husband passed away. Everyone thought it was a heart attack. Word of the secret murder spread among other wives. Women began to come to Fazekas for the arsenic that would release them from their unhappy marriages. Fazekas started selling bottles of the poison for money. The price varied from person to person. She sold the arsenic at whatever price the buyers could afford to pay. She never told anyone where her homebrewed poison came from. She assured her buyers that the arsenic was untraceable in the body. It would prove to be her Achilles' heel in the future. Soon, men around the village began to drop dead like flies. The death rate was so high that superstitious people began to whisper uneasily of witchcraft and evil spirits. At one point, there were as many as 50 women poisoning their husbands. These women called themselves the Angel Makers of Nagrev. There were unspoken rules among these angels during their early days. Only married women may join the ranks. Angel makers cannot aid single women to poison off their lovers, nor can they help a husband to get rid of an unwanted wife. It was forbidden to poison women or children. Spinsters and women in happy marriages, with no need of husband-killing services, were not to be told about the syndicate's grim activities. The number of deaths grew as more wives sought out these services, after a while, the number of marriages in the vicinity plummeted. 
men became fearful of matrimony. Marriage was akin to a death sentence, it seemed. To avoid suspicion from authorities, Fazekas roped in an accomplice, a woman called Susi Ola. Ola had poisoned her much older husband when she was 18 years old. She would go on to finish off a second husband as well. Ola's son-in-law was the village's only coroner. All the death certificates were signed by him. The mysterious deaths were written off as heart attacks, disease, alcoholism, and drownings when a poisoned body was tossed into the river. With no real medical doctors around, there was no one to challenge his conclusions. The few doctors that were staying around the region were underpaid and overworked. They paid little attention to what was happening in Nagrev. It wasn't long before the deaths spiraled out of control. Poisoning became a fad. The widows began to kill indiscriminately out of greed, convenience, and boredom, ignoring the original creed of the Angel Makers. Unwanted lovers, elderly parents in the way of inheritance, annoying relatives, children who were a burden to feed, the disabled, all were fair game for the poisoners. Palinka only wanted to poison her husband at first, but it worked so well that she went on to send her parents, her two brothers, her sister-in-law, and her aunt to their graves as well. She did it so that she could claim a house and two and a half acres of land all for herself. Polinka committed the murders with a flare. She would feed her victim a small dose of poison, just enough to give him cramps. To cure the ailment, Polinka would dash off to town and return with an expensive bottle of medicine. She would dole out generous spoonfuls of the medicine to the victim until he expired. Of course, the contents of the medicine bottle had been replaced much earlier with flypaper water. Marie Cardos killed her husband, her lover, and her sickly 23-year-old son. As a last motherly gesture to her son, she moved his bed outside the house on one warm autumn day and fed him the poisoned soup herself. I gave him some more poison, she recalled in court. Suddenly, I remembered how splendidly my boy used to sing in church. So I said to him, Sing, my boy. Sing my favorite song. He sang it with his lovely, clear voice. Then suddenly he cried out, gripped his stomach, gasped, and was dead. Maria Varga, 41, murdered her husband, a blind war hero, when he raged about her having sex with her young lover repeatedly at home. He died in agony within 24 hours of consuming the poison. She didn't stop there. Five years later, when she grew tired of her young lover, she poisoned him off as well. Lydia, Siri, poisoned both of her elderly parents. Neighbors later testified that they heard her father cry out to his dying wife, May the devil take Lydia! She had brewed us tea which has killed us. 
Julianne Lipka killed seven people, which included her family members, her stepmother, aunt, brother, and sister-in-law. She poisoned her husband's rum and tea on Christmas Eve. In the spirit of neighborliness, she also aided the woman living next door to her. I was so sorry for the wretched woman, she said. I gave her a bottle of poison and told her if nothing else helped her marriage, to give it to her husband. Valent Cordas, the second in command of the Angel Makers, fed a deadly dose to a few of her children when they proved to be one too many mouths to feed. Rosalie Sebastian and Rose Hoiba murdered their husbands because the men bored them. Maria Tsenzi poisoned her husband because he always had his way. It's terrible the way men have all the power, she said. The inexplicable deaths grew at an alarming rate, spreading to the neighboring town of Tsekert. The total death toll in the region was estimated to be as high as 300, and by 1929, Negev was known as the Murder District. The murders in Negev and nearby Tisakert continued unabated over a decade despite the occasional suspicion of the police. Frightened villagers had sent anonymous letters to the authorities to accuse the women of poisoning their family members. But there was no evidence beyond rumors that foul play was involved. All the death certificates had listed natural causes for the deaths. Visiting detectives found that the local populace were cowed by what they thought were sinister powers of Fazekas. An Oakland Tribune newspaper article in 1937 reported that a local clergyman told detectives the superstitious peasants are terrified of her. They believe she has supernatural powers, and as her official capacity as nurse and midwife gives her access to every family, she dominates the entire district. These villages, gentlemen, are utterly dominated by women, and the men are all afraid for their lives. The turning point came in 1929 when Hungary finished its 10-year census. Officials studying the statistics noticed that the death rate for the village of Nyagrev was unusually high. A major investigation ensued. One woman, Mrs. Sabo, admitted to poisoning her husband and brother. She fingered Fazekas and Ola, the leaders of the widowmaker Kapal. Fazekas and Ola were brought in for questioning, but they were both steadfast in their proclamations of innocence. Mrs. Sabo retracted her confession, claiming that she had been bullied by the police into making the statement. Fazekas and Ola were released. It was a triumph for them. They now looked untouchable in the eyes of the frightened villagers. But unknown to them, the police had both of them placed under surveillance. Fazekas was secretly shaken by her arrest. She began to visit her former customers' homes one by one to warn them that the game was up and they shouldn't talk. 
the detective shadowing her noted down the houses she had visited. The police would proceed to arrest the occupants of the houses later. Meanwhile, Valent Cordas, one of the leaders of the syndicate, made a trip to the capital to visit a chemist. She wanted to know if traces of arsenic can be found in the body of a person who had died from consuming it. The chemist assured her that the chemical can still be found in such a corpse. Even if the flesh had decomposed over the years, traces of arsenic can be found in the fingernails and the hair. Balint Cordas, faint and white from this shocking news, hurried back to the village to inform her circle. Fezekas and Ola received this news like a bolt of lightning. The arsenic-laden bodies lying in the village cemetery would be proof of their dirty deeds. The remains of their victims could undo them all. They hastily decided on a plan of action to muddy the evidence. That night, thirteen widows of the murder syndicate gathered at the Negrev Cemetery. They planned to shuffle the tomb headstones around in a bid to fool the authorities. They were going to remove the headstones from the graves of the poisoned dead and replace them with headstones of those who were not poisoned. This way, when the bodies of the suspected poisoned are exhumed, the police would be unable to detect any trace of arsenic in the corpses. However, their plan was foiled when the police arrived. The widows scattered, having moved only a few headstones. The police decided to exhume the bodies in the cemetery immediately. Overnight, the cemetery turned into a morgue as doctors tested parts of the bodies for traces of arsenic. A few widows, eager to prove their innocence, wholeheartedly supported the digging. They were fearful that their current husbands will abandon them. They wanted this chance to prove that they were not part of any murdering syndicate. The results of the exhumation were somber. Of the 50 bodies, 46 were found to contain arsenic. The bodies that tested positive for arsenic included not only men, but women, children, and even a baby. Bottles containing dried-up sediment of arsenic as well as bread and cakes laden with the poison, were also found in the coffins. It was Fazika's method of getting rid of the evidence in her house. In light of the evidence, the police arrested around 100 widows, including Ola. Fazika's took her own life before the police could take her in. Like many of the villagers, she lived in a modest one-story house near the street. Her home had a full view of the length of the road, and when she saw the gendarme coming down the street, she took her own poison. The police found her dead, surrounded by pots filled with water and flypapers. To learn more about the other women assassins, many of whom went to trial, do check out the link for Ashwood's original story. Thank you for joining me as always.
Remember to catch up with us on Twitter and Facebook and the website, and please do check out our Patreon page for more content. Good night. Thank you.